Welcome back. back. Welcome to Decision Space. The only show to play take space. <laughs> this is the worst. Okay. <laughs> Literally, this is the worst ever. Welcome to Decision Space. The only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we are going to talk about something new, something old, and something that's never, ever getting reprinted. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We're doing a uh, episode where we do mini reviews on some of the games we've been playing recently. And, you know, we're talking about the hotness. That's something that we always do on this show. Yep. That's that's why we made the show. <laughs> that's why I made the show. <laughs> Talk about the hotness. And that's what we're doing today on Decision Space. But for real, we've got a ton of really exciting games coming to you. A lot of these are games that my friend Jared brought back from Essen uh, that I've had the chance to play that we'll be doing a little bit of uh, initial impressions on. And then, of course, it wouldn't actually be Decision Space if we didn't uh, have some evergreen goodness in there, too, uh, that we're going to talk about as well. Yeah, I think the average age of games we're talking about is like 2012. So, like, you know, (laughs) classic Decision Space here. But no, there's lots of new stuff. It's really exciting. Jake, you're talking about some things that I I actually am just learning about for the first time and is making me very excited. I'm not going to say that it has something to do with Rhino Kniz, but it does. This so is kind I of like a Rhino Kniz episode. It kind of is. And K&K, we're going to talk about a, a Kramer and Kiesling game, I think. And then we're talking about, well, we'll keep it a surprise. But I think listeners will be really excited about a certain segment we'll be doing later. I don't think we're talking about a, a K&K game, are we? We are. It's a card game. Oh. It's me. Oh. It's me. Sorry, I was I, too I, thinking. I was just focusing on what I'm going to be talking about. That's exciting. <laughs> I had no idea that was a K&K game. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. All right. Awesome. Before we dive into that conversation, let's give a quick shout out to our newest patron from our Decision Space Patreon. Patrick, welcome aboard the Interdecisional Spaceship crew. We are so pleased to have you. We made an appeal for patrons at the very end of our last episode. So if you didn't tune in all the way to the end of that that's all right. But essentially, we just want to remind you that we do have a Patreon uh, to support our show. We spend, you know, anywhere between four or five hours a week working on this show to hopefully, you know, add a little bit of joy to your life and or week. So if you have any interest in supporting us, you know, it would really go a long way to help us out. Five dollars a month is, you know, essentially the price of a coffee uh, and, and it would make us really happy. So that's the hard sell. If you're interested, you can find that at decisionspacepodcast.com slash Patreon. And thank you to Patrick and listeners like you for supporting the show. Okay, now on to it. Jake, you're like you're like on this like trick-taking what how would you characterize it? What would you call it? Like a rumspringer? Like a, a binge? Dude, uh, I don't a think curious it's curious tete a tete. I don't think it's me at oh, all. Okay. It's not you. I think I think it's the world at large that trick-taking games are really becoming popular. Like They're I feel in like Vogue? I feel like the trick-taking renaissance is happening right now and I would even go at so far as to say that trick-takers are today what roll and write games were in like 2019. Like it feels like tons of mm. new trick-taking games are coming out. That's interesting. A lot of designers are putting their kind of spin on it. And it's been really interesting to see the different ways that this simple mechanism 
can be used. So I've been playing some trick-taking games. And the one I'm going to talk about today is a game I've mentioned briefly on this podcast before, but I had my second experience with, and I want to share with you, Nikosu Dice. Japanese trick-taking game from 2016. Yeah. Just, it's like a cult hit. Yeah, and, and, uh, pub, and designed by uh, Yasuke Matsumoto. Apologize for my pronunciation, but uh, I think a very small print run, and now it has a second edition of the game. And this is a game that Jared, my friend Jared, brought back from Essen, and it was like a hot game at Essen. So I think he said it was the very first game he you know, stood in line to get first thing wow. in the morning, and he was like 200th in line or something. And Jared's a People, Kinesia fiend, so he yeah. put Nikosu dice above because he Kinesia knew games. wise sagely that this was going to be a hot commodity. Wow. Apparently, you know, it was like a game that people ran for the publisher or designer, whoever brought like a briefcase full of 300 copies of this game, and that was it. Board games are wild. That's <laughs> Isn't amazing. That crazy? <laughs> uh, so anyway, so he, luckily, uh, Jared was able to pick up a copy for a different friend, actually, in our gaming group, very kindly. Anyway, so we got a chance to play it. So Nikosu Dice is a trick-taking game, and here's how it works. Everybody is... So it starts out with instead of dealing out cards like a normal trick-taking game well actually you deal out cards also but the main part of the setup is you roll Wait, a can i guess bunch of dice I was gonna guess. You're gonna guess. <laughs> so you roll a bunch of dice on the table and then you do like a draft so everybody takes turn drafting a dice from the middle uh until there are only two dice left and then the last player to choose will take one of the two and the other becomes the Trump suit, right? So that's pretty confusing. Um, and the, so the last dice that no one wants, right? So say there's Trump. like a blue five and a yellow two left. I draft the blue five. That means that yellows and twos are all Trump suit. Does that make sense to you? One hundred percent. And I'm so intrigued. Yeah. So like if I have a a yellow five, that's no longer something I can play into a yellow trick. It has to be a Trump suit now. It's like no longer yellow. It's now Trump suit. And then there's like a whole categorization of sort of strength. So matching color and number with the Trump suit is like the strongest. Mm -hmm. Matching number with the Trump suit is second strongest. Matching color with the Trump suit is third. third strongest. And then within that, higher number would win. Sure. So you have this whole thing to kind of keep track of. So that's just the setup of the game. And then the gameplay itself is really interesting. So it's like a very standard trick taker where I think there's four suits of cards in the game, like different colors. Um, but on your turn, you have to follow suit and then mm-hmm. high card or high number wins. But you could also play your dice. Exactly. You so you, oh. when, it, when it comes to you, you have a hand of hidden information, your cards, but you also have dice publicly available in front of you so you essentially know what half is like half of everybody's hand okay so you can play either a dice giving up public information or a card you know hidden information whoever wins the trick um gets like one point i think is they're like, bidding yeah so i'm getting to the bidding okay okay sorry so sorry sorry the bidding is the last twist here which is that you have the dice in front of you that you have drafted. Whichever dice is your last remaining becomes your bid. 
So if I use all my dice besides my five blue, that means my bid is five and I have to win five tricks to hit my Whoa. bid. That's the coolest thing about this game for me because- Your bid's like variable. Your bid is variable and you can, wow. over the course of the round, you can navigate towards a certain outcome. And I mm. find as somebody who's newer to trick-taking, right? I didn't grow up playing a lot of trick-taking yeah. games. So a lot of like the more nuanced strategy of like evaluating my opening hand and making a bid in a more standard trick-taking is incredibly hard. Like I mm -hmm. feel like I'm yeah. taking a, just a wild shot in the dark. Yep. And in Nokosu Dice, I feel as though I'm able to tactically play towards variable outcomes. If I'm winning a bunch of tricks early, then I want to try and play towards getting, you know, one of my dice being a higher bid last. And and then maybe all of a sudden now I, I'm trying not to win anymore, but because it's just it's a lot more fluid. I'm feeling like I'm making tactical choices the whole time and it doesn't feel like the major decision point of the game is front loaded like it does in a lot of other trick taking games. And to clarify, these are all D6, right? So your bit is always one or through somewhere values one through six. Exactly. And okay. Uh, the better you're at, you are at the game, the better you are evaluating your hand, you can use that skill to do a better job in the drafting phase. So for me, I know I don't really have that skill set. I was just trying to take a wide array of numbers. Mm. You know, if I could have one through six, that would be great because then- You always make your bid. You, don't, you won't always make your bid because sometimes you have to commit before sure. you come to a situation in the end game where people are trying to feed you extra bids or whatever. But, you know, you know it's like I, I had a chance. You can mm -hmm. also force people to follow with a dice that they don't necessarily want to because you have to follow on suit. So then there's like even more strategy there where mm. like if if I want, if I have like a one and a six and I'm going for six, it's really good if I'm able to keep the two of like if those dice are the same color. So I'm if I ever get in a situation where I'm forced to play blue, I can use my one instead of my six. Because you can like judo throw your opponents into having a bid they don't want. Exactly. That's, oh no, that's <laughs> yeah. crazy. That's wild. So that's, I mean, that's pretty much the game. The only other twist, I think this is a change actually in the second edition from the version I played before. There are now two dice in the drafting pool that have no values on them. And if mm. you take, you can take one of those at any point in the draft and that signifies that you're trying to go null, null? and win okay. zero tricks. Yep. And if you do that, then if you take that black dice, then you that you don't do the normal version of bidding. That's just automatically always going to be your bid. You're just you've bid null because you drafted the black die. Exactly. Okay. This so sounds that's, awesome. That's Nikosu dice. It's how, awesome, dude. How long does it take to play a game of Nikosu dice? Like how many rounds? How many hands is it? I think in the rules, it's you play as many rounds as you have players. So we okay. most recently played a four player game and we played over four rounds. Um, and the, the way the bidding works is fun and exciting too, because uh, if, if you, the way it works is if you hit your bid, you get 10 points for each player that did not hit their bid. So in one round, you know, one of somebody in my group hit their bid and nobody else did. So they got 30 points, which is, you know, uh, a lot of points, you know, everybody else gets like, I got three, so, <laughs> or I got one, whatever. 
So what that effectively meant was everybody was still alive going the last round because if everybody had enough points to where if they were if they were able to hit their bid and nobody else did, that would have been enough to swing the game. So that was really exciting. Like yeah, I was that's really cool. Yeah. So I, I was in like first place going into the final round and I basically needed to like prevent that situation from happening, which was also an interesting wrinkle. And I just have to say, like hitting your bid in this game, I don't I think the first time I played it, I managed to hit my bid one time and I felt like, wow, that was like a miracle that would never happen again. And this time I think I hit it twice, maybe three times in four rounds. So it, nice. I don't think it's actually as hard as I thought it might be, but it just feels like incredibly satisfying you've accomplished yeah it really feels like i've done something amazing here you're just like look how many everybody count my tricks look at this dice (laughs) see what that says what's up (laughs) yes so everything i'm hearing is like you want to own this game you want to play more trick-taking games i definitely want to i definitely want to play more nikosu dice it's definitely my favorite trick-taking game i've played to date um not all of them have been huge hits for me and what i find is that I play a trick-taking game. I'm like, that was really novel and clever and and fun. You know, I played Robotrick and I played various versions of The Crew and I played Fox in the Forest, but they aren't games that stick with me and make me mm. want to go back and revisit. But Nokosu Dice does stick with me. You know, that's a game that I am, you know, I would actively want to play and not just like, yeah, sure, I'd play that. That sounds pleasant. Totally. Um, so I think this one... For me, and maybe for other people who, like me, aren't the biggest trick-taking enthusiasts, and that might sound crazy because I think this is on the more complex end of trick-taking games, but if you kind of fall into that boat where maybe some of the other trick-taking games you've played uh, have, haven't hit you that strongly, maybe give this one a try. I think it was a big hit for three out of the four of us at the table, and then one player bounced off it fairly strongly. One thing really quick as an aside, Jake, that blows my mind about this game that you talk about loving a game generally. So I want to comment about it is that so like when you're playing a classic trick taking game like spades, right, you know, there will be 14 tricks. So when you're trying to think through your bid somehow, I don't know that the math was just perfect, but more or less, let's say like, you know, how many tricks will be played in a hand. So you know that the number of bids are divisible by that number. But in Nikosu dice, you might roll and the average value of all the dice out there could be lower than average so you're all kind of forced into lower bids potentially or you're all forced into higher bids if it just like comes out that they're all higher dice it's i think there's a lot of dice in this game so it's unlikely that that like skews too much in one direction but the fact that it could happen is pretty wild and yeah definitely there's a really interesting texture based on a dice roll we had one of our four rounds that just had a ton of fives and and as a result of that uh, a five ended up being the Trump suit and just everybody had a ton of fives. Interesting. So it was so, like a um, Trump so for, suit heavy that, round. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah, totally changed cool. the texture of the round. Yeah. So anyway, that's Nikosu Dice. It's a high recommend from me. Uh, if I think it's really difficult to get still and maybe for a long time. Um, but if you have a chance to seek out, definitely do. And I, this would be an easy game, I think, to manufacture on your own out of Mm. components you might have lying around okay so this next game jake manufacturing on your own (laughs) seems to be a trend that i've heard with this game could you talk to us more about this what's this game by carl chuddick 2005 glory to to rome i got a chance to play glory to rome wow 
at a recent game night, and this is the black box edition of the game, though not an official, you know, version of the game. It it was a game that had been, I don't know, put together through some black market means <laughs> sure <laughs> which could just mean someone printed it on a printer and put it in sleeves you know yeah, uh, yeah well i cannot confirm or deny any okay of okay this. okay uh but Great. it was a very nice quality version of the game and it looked like the black box which i think matters because of that that was like the artistic styling of the game and it might have been even like better because I think that perhaps this individual uh, did a little creative graphic design on their own to make things a little bit more clear for their players. Enhance PNP. Yeah. It. So it might be the best. I don't, you know, I don't want to like go out on a limb here, but it might be the best version of this game that's ever existed. Wow. <laughs> so anyway. My expectations here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So I got a chance to play Glory to Rome. And if you haven't heard of Glory to Rome, this is a game by Carl Chuddick. It came out in 2005, and it kind of has a really large reputation in the board game hobby as this like mythical grail game because it's been out of print since 2005. Uh, there's, uh, if you want more information, there's some, uh, I think like an article from IGN in like 2016 or something uh, talking about like the dispute, the contract dispute of this game, talking about like how it's been in trademark limbo or whatever for a long time and obviously it's like many years since then now and still nothing so Um, to be clear with the title of this episode this is something never getting reprinted. this is something that unfortunately is probably never getting reprinted and so i didn't really know i wasn't super hyped to play this game because Mm. i kind of thought perhaps this would be a case of a game where the kind of reputation Mm. like larger than life uh, it just makes sense to me that this is the kind of thing that could be overhyped. And also, Carl Chuddick's done a ton of other games, Innovation, Impulse, Red 7, Motenai. Mot- yeah, Motenai. Which I guess is similar to Glory to Rome and others. And I haven't played a ton of these. I played Innovation, but only like You've once or twice. And kind of right? bounced off it a little bit. So all those reasons... I wasn't super, super, you know, hyped to, to play this despite the reputation. Uh, but anyway, we played it. And I have to say, Brendan, it is just a, a tragedy that this game is out of print, oh, not no. accessible to people because it is an incredible game. I was okay. just f- totally blown away by this game. Wow. Okay. What about it? I need yeah. to know more. Okay. So I'm going to try and explain the core mechanisms of the game in brief. So it is a card driven game where each where you use multi use cards Uh, and then it also has a lead and follow mechanism that works like this. Uh, I think there are like something like six maybe different main actions in the game and one of them is the architect and so I could say I'm going to play this architect card and it goes around the table. And then anybody who has an architect card or who wants to discard two of the same card in the variant that we played with uh, can say, I'm in. And I'll also do the architect action. And then we all, everybody wants to, does the architect action. If you don't or can't do that, uh, you can instead say, I'm going to think. And when you think, you're able to refill your hand to the max hand limit uh, or draw one card if you're already at the max hand limit. And then it's kind of interesting. So unlike a Puerto Rico or a race for the galaxy though, there's no benefit for being the person who leads the the action. Everybody yep. gets to do 
the exact same action who wants in on it. You, your kind of benefit for being leader is you get to pick whatever action best suits you. Interesting. There's a, another mechanism in this game. So I can't remember the name of each of these actions. I should have, I should have it in front of me, but I don't. Um, but one of the action allows you to tuck a card to the left of your uh, player board. And a card that's tucked to your left of your player board means that whenever that's like you constantly have access to that action so if i tuck an architect there for the rest of the game anytime somebody says architect i get to do a free architect action plus if i have another architect in my hand i could also play that and do like a double architect action so you could get into situations in this game where i really need to play architect but the person who's going after me has three architects tucked there. So like, do I want to give them like a free triple action to my one? And then what you're actually trying to do in this game is build out structures. Um, so one of the actions, I think architect actually allows you to like play a card from your hand uh, to build it. Um, so that's like the main text on the card is each of the card. There's like all kinds of different structures you can build that all have like wild and crazy powers so one of the things i built in the game said that when my merchants are tucked to the left of my player board they get to count as wild so i had like three merchant tucked so i got to do every single action that anybody else did three times that was a very expensive card to build so it took me a while to get up to it other things you'll be doing is like getting resources it's pretty onerous to actually get a resource so maybe an action is like i play the laborer and that just allows me to play one resource to structure that i'm trying to build if and assuming i have the right structure and or the right resource and all the cards in your hand not only do they count as like a main action thing uh, they also have a different like they'll be associated with a resource so they're also the resources uh their victory points and something else too <laughs> so that's basically the main core of the game you're going around taking these really simple actions building crazy powers uh structures that give you crazy powers and can combo together and the amazing thing about this game is i think we played it in an hour and a half Mm. with the teach so i was expecting kind of like a longer i think sometimes slog i think 2005 you know and earlier like these are tend to be like longer more yeah more of a slog you know long to build up and this just isn't like that at all like as soon as we were powered up it I think the, the let me let me say like this: the game end triggered once like all the bases that you need to build uh, a structure. Like when you play a structure card, you get a base from like this supply, that's like a shared supply, and there's a ton of these bases. And I think the end game condition is like all of those bases are gone, and it, you do nothing to start the game. It's so slow and plodding that it just feels like this is actually going to take four hours of my life. Yeah. But you power up so fast, and like you really hit like exponential growth. That as soon as I had that crazy combo, I had it was I basically got one action and didn't. I probably could have won had I realized that was going to be my last action, but I thought probably I'd have two or three more actions Mm. and it was, the game was over on the next player's turn. Wow. Um, Yeah. So that's how fast it goes. I will say, so when people talk about Carl Chatter games, especially innovation, I think Lord of the Realm and Matina, what they usually talk about is, oh my gosh, the powers in this game are so wild and obscene. How could this be a thing that's balanced? But I think what also people don't emphasize enough is what you've really been honing in on, Jake, is the the difference in terms of magnitude of 
how much your agency in terms of your actions have the start of the game versus the end. Like what you're doing on a given turn of innovation on turn on age one turns one through three versus turns 30 to 40 is just like wildly different. Like the impact your actions have, it's like the magnitude of the effects, I think is kind of shocking in a way that's really fun. And it sounds like part of what's so cool about Glory to Rome is you're like tucking all these cards and all of a sudden you get to do an action like four times at one turn. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, it's that and also the fact that every single player's turn is potentially an opportunity for you to do something yeah, awesome. Cool. It may yeah. be even way more awesome than whoever's turn it is. Yeah. And it works both ways. Like I had some turns where it's like, this really sucks because <laughs> like it's going to be Charlie better for, for everybody move. else. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, there, I think there's so much like rich decision space just there in sort of like unpacking that. And, yeah, do you like I this mean, game enough that you'll like request it in a future dude, game? I maybe? would. Yeah, absolutely. I, wow. this game. That's was, big for you. I, yeah. I I uh I felt really excited about it. It it would it played so fast that I almost even though we finished at like nine and usually our game nights go till about ten at the latest. Yeah, I was I, again. I, I kind of wanted to be like you guys want to like run it back real quick, which we never do, and we didn't yeah. do there. But uh, it's one I would actively want to play again. Definitely will be requesting and hope to you know now that. I'm in this game group where we have a copy. Like I want to take advantage and get it played because it is just like, unfortunately a rare thing. So I want to take advantage of the privilege to play it while I can uh, and make sure I get my fill. And again, this is glory to Rome. Carl Chodic's game from 2005 designed with Ed Carter of third. Yeah. I wish Jake, I could tell you it's not worth the hype, but unfortunately it's worth the hype. It's worth the hype. It really okay, is. Now that don't, you, I don't know if I would be spending $500 on eBay mm, or whatever, but definitely not. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but should we play innovation now that you're like intrigued by Carl Chodic? I'm more, yeah, I'm more into it now for sure okay. than I was before. I think, okay, game, play four games with me and then decide what you want to do. That sounds good. Also, I was playing disc golf with a friend today, and he was talking about how he's been playing a ton of innovation. And he said that the per- he's been playing like a series of games with a different friend, someone I don't know. And he said that person is like the only games they play are splatter games and innovation. So wow. that made me think like that's interesting. Like, yeah, that, that made me intrigued as well. I think it's going to appeal to the Magic the Gathering like part of your brain. All right, in a fun well, way. Definitely. All right. I accept. accept okay. Okay. Challenge okay. To a four game innovation series. What's next? Okay. So In last night, Jake reviews, mini reviews. Yes. This is something old and something new, but neither the something old or something new of the title. I think it is Zuvatis 2023. Hey. This is a game we've covered on the show. I think it's definitely hotness, dude. It's definitely it's hotness. It's super That's, hot right now. Yeah, It's so hot right now. So Jake and I played this at Geekway to the West last year. Jake had previously played it at a twice. laughing. Yeah, we played it twice. Jake played it at a laughing table friends game group. And I went out and purchased it because it was a negotiation game that I knew that if I had the right group, it would be among the most playable games in my collection. So last night I finally got the chance. Uh, we had uh, my wife and I, Maya, had a group of just two of our friends over. And I knew that this group would be perfect for Zubatis, so I pulled it out and we played a game. Uh, we played with the lions, the rhinos, the crocodiles, and the armadillos. 
And it was, I would say I've had two amazing plays of Zubatis before this that each are story worthy in their own right in a way that few games generate meaningful stories that I could tell you. Uh, this adds the third meaningful story that I could tell you. So that's what I'm going to do here in this episode, Jake. To all, all three of the other players had never played Zubatis, and I taught them the game fairly easily. I think Maya always a little bit during rules explanations that take more than four minutes. It's sort of like, this game is just, what have you brought into our home? But but came around very quickly. It was like, oh, I get why we did this. Like, this is going to appeal to my cosmic encounter loving brain. And then most of this play, Jake, was basically one of our friends hustling the table, convincing everyone that her partner was the person who was winning. Well, secretly she was running the table and convinced me to basically funnel her points. And the whole game, the whole entire game, we were all at the table. All three of us were like, this person, Rhea, is winning. Just, it was a given. We knew Rhea was winning. We totally crafted all of our behavior, all of our negotiations. Let me okay. Let me back up. Zubatis is a negotiation game where you're trying to move your unique animal uh, markers up into the star exhibit uh, at the end of the board, and to be able to do that, you have to get the buy-in of other players. And to do that, you probably have to trade them powers or points to be able to do that. Maybe now, or maybe in the future, promissorily. If you trade them now, you have to keep your promise. If you trade the future. We'll see what happens. You don't have to keep it. So a lot of this game is about making deals with players, trying to advance and build alliances or long-term partnerships uh, that could play so out in your favor. If people haven't played Zubatis yeah. or aren't familiar with it, could you give yeah. like just like the treetop overview of what is happening within these negotiations? Sure, absolutely. So you start at basically one end of the board where there's all these different exhibits. And depending on the size of that exhibit, it's going to range from one to seven. You have to have a majority of votes to advance. So if, you, if there's just one space, you can advance for free because if you're the person in it, you just need one vote to get there. But if there's five spaces, you're going to need three votes. And rarely are you going to have three of your own markers in that exhibit, meaning you're going to have to get your friends to agree to vote for you to move on. So you're going to have to agree to pay them points, agree to use your special animal power uh, to move them forwards. And maybe... I, 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 and why do they want to advance? You want to advance because to win the game, you have to get to the final location, which uh, is the star exhibit. If you're not there, no matter if you have the most points at the table, you cannot win a game of Zubatis. Okay, thank so you for that clarification. You must get there. And really, you're only advancing four or five times. It's a quick game. It plays in under an hour. Jake, the entire game, we th we all, all three Rhea's of us. Rhea's going to win. I think Rhea's Rhea, going to win. Rhea's got it in the bag. That's what yeah. I think. We all crafted our behavior around this, but it turns out Rhea's partner, Morgan, the most conniving, brilliant crocodile of all time. Like, Kinesia games sometimes have this, like, amazing reveal. Like, Tigris and Euphrates, you kind of have your pieces hidden behind your board. You never know exactly who's winning. High society, you don't know who's going to be the player who spent the most money and therefore cannot win. Modern art has this really hidden. Okay, Zuvatis takes this to the next level where you really don't necessarily know who's winning. And you could potentially count points at the table, but I find it unduly difficult. And last night, it was truly in the reveal, one of the most shocking reveals of my board game playing life, that my friend Morgan won this game. She totally and completely deceived all of us in the most politically cutthroat, 
unnerving way to the point that I was like, I I have been totally taken advantage of. It was one of the best plays I've ever seen of this game. Was it it like, was so fun. Did Morgan like run away with it? Or was to- it, it was like, like 24 to 12. 24 to 12. Like, wow. It wasn't even close. Somehow she convinced me to give her like half my points. So you were like a little bit asleep at the wheel. I I, I guess so. Right. You, I mean, because like you said, there's our public information. But all three of us just totally were. You're even all Rhea just- believed. Even Rhea believed she was winning. It was did everybody wild. did everybody make it to the star exhibit? All f- so it was a four player game. All four of us made it to the star exhibit. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that before. Yeah, I feel like in the games I've played of this, it's like cutthroat to the end. It's so brutal to get there. So I previously what did we play six seven. We played a six player game, a seven player game, and now this is a four player game. You've played the six and seven, and and probably five five. Okay, I think the five gives you a little more competition. I I liked it at four. I will say the next time I play at four, I will play totally differently. I want to get yeah. up in everyone's business. I want to be on every deal. I yeah. It I don't know. This game's really special. I think Zuvadis is hot for a reason and it's wonderful and I just want to play more of it. It's only gonna to appeal to certain player groups, but yeah. Playing Zuvadis Shake, what I realize is every game appeals to certain player groups. Like Dude, the group that agreed. wants to play Castles of Burgundy is different than the group that wants to play Zuvadis, maybe. And just all games are group dependent. Yeah. Just every, because yeah, like your group has game. a certain game that they prefer doesn't mean that games aren't group dependent. All games are group dependent. And if you have the right group for Zuvadis, just like if you have the right group for, I don't know, Chicago Express, it's going to be awesome. Zuvadis is amazing. I, I need to play it more. Yeah. I, I love that take on all games are exactly equally good. Yeah. Um, well <laughs> no, but I'm just kidding. But for me, for like for me, I can absolutely appreciate Zuvatis for being a special design by an incredible designer, and I think that you know knocked out of the park by the this version iteration yeah Yeah, it's just beautiful it's fun to play with it's not for me it's not for me at all like i don't really care for the game i'll play it again at like (sighs) geekway or decision space spa day uh but that's it you know i I would never buy this game but jake the energy in the room like i love azul i love azul i'll play azul any day but like azul feels like a snoozer then I like slapped Zubatis on the table. The conversation was we were having, the energy that was there. It's just like the the amount of fun we were having. I don't know. That's to how me, I felt about like Glory to Rome. Like that's okay, an exciting okay. game. <laughs> sure. There's an action in Glory to Rome. Sorry, flashback to our previous yep, conversation yeah, yeah. where you like seize a resource where I could say like stone and then the person on my right and left of them have to give me a stone out of their hand. And if they don't have it, they say, glory to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> but in Zuvatis, you can make three-way deals and then also promissory notes to the future that, that you then have the tension of, will this person keep the, the deal we made? I'm I with you. I'm with you. Zuvatis is a great game. It's group dependent like every game. I'm just fa- stopping just short of saying like negotiation games are like the only exciting table. Oh, experience. I didn't say that. I yeah, no, you said that. you said all <laughs> games are exactly equal because they're all group oh, dependent. No. And you said nego- <laughs> you said there are two types of games, negotiation games and Azul. Okay, you got me. All games are equally good. And there's only two types of games, negotiation games and Azul. But... Do all, all right. games, do all negotiation six, four, three to six player, three to seven player games play in under an hour? No. No. 
No, that's it's, special. It's a special. It's special. It's special. Wait, can I say one last thing? Yeah, yeah. Let's Maya end on a, said to me, a Jake, positive note. Maya goes, okay, I really like this game. This is a shocking take. I really like this game, but I don't know that it needs the unique player powers. Oh, interesting. She's just like a, a Kinesia purist in her heart, and she doesn't even know the history. She didn't know that Bitewing Games brought these cool, unique player powers to amplify and enhance the negotiation potential. And she was like, I'd rather play the 1991 Quo Vadis. Quo Vadis. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's know. funny, but uh, I think, I don't know that the unique player powers did that much for me yeah. in the plays. But I think they're it's fun. interesting that the crocodiles won and not the rhinos, right? The rhinos were the ones that yeah, we that was Maya. were That's like. That's why she was like, yeah. The rhinos are ones that can take people with them. Exactly. Yeah. So and the armadillos. Yeah. I think you know it's really fun to be like I'm the marmosets. Like look yeah. at my little marmoset. It gives you a little thing. bit of an identity, yeah. but definitely those powers not necessarily created equal, which is fine because we what's we we talk about async and balance, not async, in a different asymmetric episode. and balance yeah. in a different episode. But yeah, Zuvatis, anyway, Zuvatis. Maybe definitely we'll talk about it more with on you show. on the story. Yeah, some of yeah. my most memorable games ever, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. Okay, so next up uh, is a game uh, that a lot of people would define as... Wait, wait, wait. It's our special segment. Alternate boards of classic games. Oh, okay, dang, dude. That's a good new segment. And yeah, so <laughs> so this is a game that... It's called Hansa Teutonica. Brendan would say it's like Azul Hansa because Teutonica. it's not a negotiation game. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There's there's bickering. There's annoying each other. Uh, so anyway, I played Hansa Teutonica at a recent game night, but we didn't play on the unbalanced main <laughs> standard board. We instead played on the the Eastern board. So that was exciting. Was it? It actually was exciting okay, because yeah. so that my hot take that literally nobody agrees with and always flames me on Discord about is that the main hansa teutonica base game board is not balanced because the actions space like the action power the power that gives you more actions and more turn efficiency because you can do more on every single turn is like over centralizing you have to upgrade that in order to win the game you don't have to upgrade any other action and therefore that is an over centralizing mechanism and it's really frustrating on the base game board because of how like coercively the game forces interaction at that action space. If you haven't played Hansa Teutonica before, it's a game where on your turn you'll be putting cubes that represent traders on trading routes in Germany. And you put these cubes in a route and if you claim a whole route with your cubes, uh, you get to put a cube in a house or you get to upgrade a power depending on the route. And on the base game board of Hansa, there are only two routes going to the action upgrade space, meaning those are always in conflict for at least the first third of the game. Everything is focused down there. Enter the expansion board. I think it's called East Germany. (laughs) What is it called? Uh, But anyway, it's the one that's East something. And this board, I think, remarkably improves the play experience with The main difference to me is that the action space now has three routes going to it, Mm. opening up the game significantly, making it easier to knock off that uh, mandatory upgrading the actions at least twice to unlock your 
extra action every single turn. Uh, and then you can go on to explore different strategies in a whole new way. Uh, so I really appreciated that subtle change to the the formula of Hansa. I think this is now my preferred version of this game just because, you know, I mean, some people obviously like that fact that everybody sort of has to fight in that same area. I, for me, had played Hansa Teutonica three or four times on the baseboard and all my plays played out so similarly. Um, and I feel like this is just my first play on this, that opening that up would allow for kind of a more dynamic experience where like different parts of the board will be more contested in different plays based on what people are going for. Uh, so that, I mean, that's pretty much what I have to report about this board. There are a couple other changes to it. At the top of the board, there are shipping routes that are require you to have your blue merchant or not your blue, your circle merchant uh, pieces involved. And those give an upgrade, a permanent, have like a permanent bonus action. So anytime you complete one of those, you get to do a bonus action. So that's like a fun kind of riff on the strategy as well. But yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So Jake. Over to you. Well, okay. If someone in the future was like, Jake, do you want to play Hansa Teutonica? In, and then they were like, it's the regular board. What would you say? I would say, have you played... The East. Like, oh, expansion. do you have the big box? Yeah. Do, have you tried East Germany? Because it's like going to blow your mind how much it's awesome. I would really so try and hard sell them on it. You would be like, I'd much prefer to play this version. I definitely I'd really would much. rather not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still not the biggest Hansa Teutonica fan in yeah. the world. And I less than you. But yeah, would, and, would I would you be like, Brendan, that's that's try this. No. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but for you who likes Hansa more than me, you would agree to play it again with the East expansion. Yeah. I, I mean I've just like accepted my lot in life is that this is a game <laughs> that will, people Hansa will like continue to yeah. play uh, yeah. place in front of me. So I am excited to know that this version of the game exists. And I do think it's an improvement for me. That's so cool. yeah, I think it, this might be, my theory is that a lot of people have the big box and maybe haven't checked this out. I, I think it was new to everybody in our play and these were like Hansa enthusiasts. So if you haven't tried it out, I would highly recommend you give it a shot. And I just looked it up, it's, it is called the East Expansion. Okay, perfect. So cool. So in this alternate boards segment, my alternate board I've tried recently is for a 1999 Kinesia Classic, Tigris and Euphrates. I've been playing a ton of Tigris and Euphrates on Board Game Arena this year, and the group of players who I've been playing with, uh, we decided to explore the backside of the board. Uh, this is the backside of the board in the Fantasy Flight version of the game uh, that I think came out. And I think it previously was maybe released as an expansion, like a standalone for an earlier version, the Hansom Glick slash Rio Grande version. I don't know that for sure. Um, but anyways, this is an alternate board that you can play Tigris and Euphrates on designed by Kinesia that exists in the world. So I'm intrigued. I love Tigris and Euphrates. I think it's one of the best games Kinesia has ever designed. I think it's one of my favorite board games of all time. It's Interesting, dynamic, never the same, and uh, endlessly fun for me. The backside of the board is unique because it changes the layout of the board. And it essentially, there's this river, right? The game's called Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, so there's rivers, they play a role. Uh, and crossing those rivers, essentially on the front side of the board, 
is impactful because it determines when there's going to be meaningful conflict and when there's not going to, like how much conflict is going to happen and when. What this board does is it pushes the rivers inwards and it basically makes the area on the inside of the board tighter and the outside of the board a little bit more open, which means essentially that this board is way fightier. You're just going to end up in more wars. You're going to end up in wars when you don't know when they're coming, uh, at least for me. And it's going to be a little bit more conflict prone. So I think players who want their games of Tigris and Euphrates to be more confrontational, to be more dynamic, to be more sweeping, maybe to favor uh, variable outcomes a little bit more would really enjoy this backside of the board. I will say so far for me, it feels much more difficult to tame the chaos that this board potentially presents. But I think there's a lot for me to learn. One thing about the front side of the board is there's only one space. When you, Whenever you have a square of four of the same color tiles, you can create a monument. And because blue tiles can only be placed on river spaces, on the front side of the board, there's only one location that a blue monument can ever exist on the board, uh, which is it centralizes in some ways, that front side and blue. Uh, but on the back side, there's actually two locations. So it can play out sort of differently in terms of where blue monuments can come into play. I don't hate the back side of the board. I think so far, I've played it four times. I vastly prefer the front side, but because it's Kinesia and because I want to learn, I'm happy to keep playing the backside and try to understand how to navigate the storm of chaos that I am just feel like is a fire hose of war being unleashed upon my gullet. I... Honestly, I had no idea that there was a backside, backside yeah. of the board. I thought like, I genuinely thought that you guys were doing a bit or when really? we were talking about it. That's awesome. like, Oh yeah, we're playing like the backside <laughs> of the Tiger's New Freddy's board. Like what? Uh, but I guess it's real. So it sounds yeah. like, sounds like something to explore after you've played hundreds of games on the front side of the board. I, I think the pacing of the front side is just a little bit more consistent in a way that when you're learning the core mechanisms of the game is not only welcome and nice in terms of the learning curve, but also reliable and fun in a way that like this backside is just like, if you want to jump into a ring and have a cage fight, you can. Uh, but I don't know if I'm here for it. Yeah, it's, I think like for whatever reason, Tiger's New Phrase occupies like the same part of my brain as like chess. So it's sure. like, it'd be like if somebody's like, oh yeah, we we're trying like the alternate chess board to see if we yeah. like that. I'd be like, what? Why are You're we joking, right? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we'll report back later, uh, you know, a hundred plays in what I think yeah. of this board. But, but for I now, think it sounds like it's more of like an academic, like I should try this, but yeah, not yeah. that you're like super enthusiastic. So far it's super yeah. academic. I think yeah, I, yeah. I think I understand where you're coming from. Um, okay. All right. As promised, Brendan, I'm excited to hear about this. I didn't even know it. We have some Kramer and Kiesling on the podcast. Yes. Please tell me about these games. So many months ago, Jake, I told you that I was importing a game called Abu Luxin from Europe, uh, which is actually... It, I think Bless it you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This is a Kramer and Kiesling card game that came out in 2014. It's 104 cards, and in English is known by the name as Linko. So before, like my box says Abu Luxin on the front. Bless you. Thank you. But we call it Linko. This is a like kind of a climbing game in the same way that Scout is. Uh, scout the small box card game from Oink Games where you're trying to build sets of hands that are in greater uh, number of cards and value of cards than whatever opponents have on the table. Linko is very similar. And it's, I would say it's faster. It's a little bit less chaotic uh, and also is just has a little bit more 
nuanced hand management than Scout. I'm really directly comparing this to Scout because I played it and enjoyed Scout. Then I bought this game and I realized I like it way more than Scout, uh, which is Not, wow, definitely a hot take. But do yeah, you like I think Scout because I think I Scout, like Scout is brilliant. I think Scout's great. I really like it. I think Scout is a little bit because of the the hand mechanism, which is charming and wonderful, and something that makes me want to show people Scout makes it such that every time I show people Scout, I feel like I'm playing kind of the exact same game. I see. And it limits the decision space a little bit, but I still am happy to play Scout. I like the Scout and show tokens. I like the arc of a given round where I get to build up to some really cool hand and I see what's coming because of my hand order. But in Linko, the the flow of the game, the pacing of it is a little bit less consistent, so it's a little bit less predictable and a little bit more fun. You'll, You'll have rounds that just stretch or rounds that go really fast. So I'm dying to hear about like the, the key mechanism of this game that makes it distinct from a game like Scout. But I want to tell a very, very short, okay. funny Scout story, which is uh, I was recently playing Scout or it was a little while ago with my wife and some other friends and Bridges just whipping our asses at Scout, like just destroying us. That and checks then, out. And then, uh, which does, right? That's like, that's yeah. not the odd part, but uh, like a couple rounds in, somebody's like, hey, like Bridget, you can't like change your hand. And she had been moving. She didn't, she missed the rule that you had to like keep your hand in order without like shuffling the order of cards. So she had just been creating the perfect order of cards in her hand and just thought we were just morons <laughs> for not being able to like keep up. Yes, that's amazing. Boop, boop, okay. boop. That's yeah, awesome. She's just like one, two, three, four. Easy. <laughs> that's this is incredible. If I was 10 feet tall playing basketball, it's the easiest right. game I've ever invented. Yeah. That's amazing. So the twist of Linko, Jake, is essentially that you can steal your opponent's points. So if they have a certain hand of cards out there that you can beat in a certain way, you can steal those points and make them your own for the end of the game. I I feel like just given where we are in the episode, I don't want to go deeper than that, but just say that this is a game by Kramer and Kiesling that came out in 2014. That's a simple small box card game. A lot of what we've talked about about them on the show, games like Tikal or Torres or Kuzco or Renature are these really, or even Palaces of Carrara are these big box, interesting games that Jake and I would dedicate whole game nights to playing and really enjoy. And Linko is just a filler card game that is awesome and fun that i want to show people and enjoy awesome yeah i'll keep my eye out for it because that sounds really fun and really nice and the last game we're covering something new this is the newest of the new or at least tied with nokosu dice but i think this is newer well nokosu dice came out in 2016 so this crushes it oh wow way newer yeah i forgot that's 2024 yeah yeah so this is also a Reiner Knizia game, the third of the episode. Cue the music. Oops. Let's go. Dance break accomplished. And this is called Mlem Space Agency. Or in German, which I kind of prefer, I believe it's called Mlem Astrokatzen, which is awesome. And this is a Reiner Knizia space-themed cat game, not to be confused with Galaxy Cat Extension, Reiner Knizia's 
space themed cat game that also came out like in the last year or two. Right? You know, that just what? seems like it's too. You can't oh release. Never mind. Okay. But this is a real game in really, and so is Galaxy Cat Extension, but they're very different. Malem Space Agency is a push your luck dice game, which I understand shares a lot of DNA with a game called Celestia. In this game, we, Brendan, us, and those around the table are piloting a rocket to space with the one rocket together. We're all riding atop it and we're one trying rocket. to go to space, preferably okay. all the way to the end of the track to reach, you guessed it, outer space. That's good, right? And the way the game works is whoever is taking turns around the table, we will all get the chance to be the captain of the spaceship. If you're the captain, it's your job to pilot the ship and you'll do that by rolling a handful of dice. And you can use that dice to move as many spaces as you can. And you have to follow a few simple rules to do that. But uh, on each space of the board, you'll see certain die values next to it. So maybe it'll show next to the space the rocket's at a four, a two, and a one. And I roll my dice. And if I roll a four, a two, or a one, great. I can use those dice to propel my ship forward equal to the value of the dice I've spent. So if I rolled two fours, anytime you use a number, you have to use all of that number. Uh, So I could use those two fours and propel the ship eight spaces forward. However, if, say, I don't roll any of the numbers shown, then the spaceship crashes and we all die. Wait, what happens if you die? You lose your turn. I mean, you don't, like, actually die. You just, like, lose the opportunity to score points for that mission. Because on after we advance, everybody around the table gets the opportunity to say, I would like to get off now. So as we're going further up the board, there are like little moons and there are planets that you can get out on and those will score you points at the end of the game. Uh, The moons are just, they can occupy one astronaut each and the, the planets can occupy any number of astronauts and then those score as like area majority. So you want to try and get out, but the further up you go, as you might expect, things become more valuable. So that's like the push your luck there. And then also when after you, you know, choose the dice that you want to use to go forward, those dice are removed from the pool. So it's getting increasingly more mm, difficult to hit the numbers that you need in order to make it all the way to outer space. There are a couple other like interesting mechanisms here. Uh, that add a little bit of decisions to the game. Not, you know, maybe not decisions, but just like an interesting texture to it. So everybody has eight different astronauts and all of them have a different power. So the astronaut that you're putting on the spaceship is going to do something that is going to change the composition of that spaceship. So for instance, like one of them is a parachute. So that one, when you crash, you get out wherever you landed. So that's a really nice one to have. It's like a fail safe. Some of them are like, if if you get out on a moon, you score times two points for that. So then if I have that one, now I'm like incentivized to try and like get to a moon and get off on a moon, but preferably a further moon because that's going to be worth the most points. So that's pretty much the game is like pushing your luck to decide how far you think you can go. And inevitably 
you crash and burn and everybody dies in my experience. And how long does this game take to play? We did play this one back to back at a game night. Okay. So we it plays pretty quickly because we played it with just the base game and we were kind of like, huh. Okay. <laughs> that, the thing that really left us puzzled about this game is making it to outer space seems incredibly hard, bordering on like just an impossible pipe dream. So like Jared, who taught this game, had played it once before and said, like going into the game that like nobody made it to outer space even once. Across our two plays, I believe one person reached outer space. And the way the game is set up, it just seems like it seems like the the design is like expecting people to make it there more than they hmm. were. So I don't know. Th- there's just something really weird about that. Like it just felt in my assuming we got all the rules right, it just felt like it was like the balance for like how difficult it was to advance further down this track was just a little bit askew of where maybe it might feel like a tiny bit more satisfying because uh, the game and trigger is like one, two, three, four, five. So it's like basically 10 crashes. So 10 rounds, mm. the game ends if each one of those crashes, but if you make the end then the spaceship doesn't crash and that's almost like, or somebody places all their eight astronauts. So those are like the two end conditions. But all of ours ended with the crashes. Like, you know, it just seems like it's inevitably crashing. Maybe sure. that's because we're all just pushing our luck way too much. This brings me to my main criticism with this game, which is it feels like a game that, and maybe that's this is a good push your luck thing, but it really feels like it pits what is fun to do, which is like rolling the dice and keep going versus like what is smart, which is like getting out at basically any opportunity to get out because this thing is going down and soon. Interesting. Which this is the thing about push your luck games is it's so it's almost so group dependent about how risk averse the group is. Would yeah. you, Jake? Okay, you played it twice. I'm risk averse as a person. Yes. But like the the it composite takes it to another level. of this game, like I just, it just make me want to be like, I want to go to outer space so damn bad. Yeah. And I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to try every time and see if it's possible. And it's just not. It's not possible. So it go to you. It's not a viable strategy. Interesting. And like one of the, so here's why it's weird. I think like one of the astronauts you can put on the spaceship, it's like if you get to outer space with it, like times two points. Hmm. Like why would that be one of your eight powers if you're only getting to outer space once across three five-player games of the game? A single person. Let me ask this. You've played Rapido slash Escape, yeah. uh, another Kinesia push your luck dice game that I think you felt was like kind of novel, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty do you, fun. Do you like this more or less than that game? I like this much less than that game. I think for me, it's just like the decision space between those two, I think is a pretty good comparison. Yeah. I don't think there's a ton of decision space here. Interesting. Like where you could really get better at it. I think it's a a fun experience game, but I don't think it's like a really like strategic thinky game. Yeah. And I and I feel like maybe there's there's just something that didn't quite add up in a really positive way for me just between the rules complexity it's kind of a lot of stuff going on with all the different player powers like the teach is just a little bit more maybe than i wanted but i think i was like the low man at the table it seemed like everybody else was having way more fun with with this one than i was so 
I mean, take that with a grain of salt. I think it's a, a lot of people have a ton of fun playing this game, but I don't think it's for me. I mean, there's also like a cat holding a spatula in a spacesuit on the cover. So I think as much as we've been talking about this game, I want to paint the picture that this game is very, very feline fun forward. Like the the illustrations are not shying away from the fact that there are cats in spacesuits. But I also counterpoint, this is like a big box game. This is like a a full on like days of wonder size box. Interesting. So like, again, you know what I mean? It's like there's sort of like a thing where my expectations and the experience are not meeting up in a perfect way. Maybe going into it again. I think I wanted more game there for just like the amount of stuff here. Interesting. And like the rules complexity. I think that's a great way of putting it. So you know, I think Reiner Knizia for me, Brendan. Yeah. I think he's just hit or miss. You yeah. know, I don't think I'm like fully like I every single I, I don't I know most people aren't like every single Reiner Knizia game. Yeah. Is but I think I do have a distinction with like the full on enthusiast where a lot of them are misses, a lot of them are huge hits. Yeah. But a lot of them really miss the mark. And I think, unfortunately, this isn't one that I would be enthusiastic to return to. And again, this is Melm, M-E-L-M, Space Agency, coming out in 2014. M-L-E-M. Like the sound a cat makes. Yeah. Wait, what? Is that a German thing? Melm? 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 Is that what cat? I heard Melm, plural. Internet slang of animal. The act of or sound of extending the tongue to lick something, especially one's own nose, without opening the mouth fully. Mlem? <laughs> what? I've been teaching my son that cats say meow. Well. Mlem. Okay, okay. Now you can teach your... Wait, extending your tongue fully to lick your nose? Read it again. Yeah, Brendan. Okay, mlem. Plural mlems. Okay. <laughs> what? Internet slang of an animal, the act or sound of extending the tongue to lick something, especially one's own nose, without opening the mouth fully. I don't know how else I could explain this to you. <laughs> I'm going to try it on camera. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is great podcasting. Okay. And for the listeners at home, Brendan was not successful. But <laughs> not I think, I think uh, maybe we should leave it there for this week's episode. Something old, something new, and something that will never be reprinted. Maybe multiple things that won't be reprinted. But anyway, <laughs> for all of our pre-planners out there, Jake and I, you know, we did Santa Monica last, uh, it was our last deep dive. That was a little bit of a sleeper fan favorite of people. There's some people who like it. But the next game we're going to cover is Heat, a game that I would say is among the hottest of the hottest games of the year. Yeah. We're going to cover it on the show. Yeah. And, you know, we have a bit of a reputation to uphold about racing games. We weren't oh, too kind to downforce, Brendan. <laughs> oh, no. We were not too... too- you know, we don't play favorites, right? Kramer and Kiesling, you know, they better come with it every single time if they're going to bring a game to market and then we're going to cover it on decision space. I will say right here, right now, I like he significantly more than I like <laughs> well, Downforce. That's a good thing. But Great. how much more? You'll have to tune in to find out and why and if the decisions are really that interesting. Great. Cannot wait for that. But until next week, we should be sure as always, to thank Hembry for our intro, outro music. Reach out. Thanks so much and have a great week. Bye, y'all. Bye.